Turn with me once again to the book of Philippians and to chapter 3. And we are going to look at the last half of that chapter this morning. Um, we continue in this series in which I've been asking the question. The, the series has been entitled, Who Are We? And if you know who we are based upon what we've described ourselves here at Ivy Creek, it's printed in your bulletin. They're going to put it up on the screen. Say it with me. We are a you all gospel first servant-hearted family of believers who want our lives to count for the glory of God. That's, that's who we are. That, that accurately states who we desire to be here at Ivy Creek. And, and it gives us a reminder of who not only we've been called to be, but how we are to live our lives. Now, last week, as we began investigating that, that last phrase, that really the last longer part of that sentence, we wanted to figure out what does it mean when we say we want our lives to count for the glory of God. And, and in our examination of what Paul writes in the first part of chapter 3, we determined that a life that counts for the glory of God will be one that abandons the pursuit of worthless things that could drive us farther away from Him. And it will be a life that treasures Christ above everything else in this world. And, and so if you missed that sermon or you'd like to go back and catch up with it, you can go to our website, you can go to our YouTube channel, you can download it, you can listen to it. I just think that it's important to understand the context of what Paul says in the first half of chapter 3 for us to truly understand what he says to us in the latter part that we're going to look at today, particularly in light of the fact that we do not want our lives to be wasted. We want our lives to count for the glory of God. In fact, let me remind you that in the opening section of chapter 3, Paul confesses that everything that he had previously banked on in his life, everything that he had one time in his life had put stock in, he now completely counted as lost. Paul would have considered himself a Jew among Jews. I mean, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had the pedigree. He not only had the pedigree, but he had the knowledge, the extensive knowledge of the Scriptures he was a Pharisee who understood exactly what the Old Testament taught. And he obeyed, he lived a life of obedience. Not only that, but he was one who persecuted the church. And, and he was proud of that fact in his earlier life because it meant that he was zealous for the law. But all of that had changed. All of that changed after he encountered the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. And after that meeting, after Jesus blinded him and captured his heart, well, according to what he says there in verse 7 of Philippians 3, he says, what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. And he goes on to regard anything that life had to offer him, not just the things that he had acquired and the things that he had worked for, but anything that the world had to offer him. He says, I consider it all loss. I consider it all as worthless. Literally, Paul says, it was dung to him. Now, that is obviously a massive shift in Paul's value system. It was, a, it was a change that moved his focus from all that he had counted on in the past to that which he now pursued with all of his heart. And what he pursued with all of his heart, he tells us in verses 10 and 11, he says that I may know Him, that is Christ, and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's passionate pursuit in life was to know Jesus and to have an abiding relationship with Him that was ever-deepening and ever-widening and ever-growing. And it is that thought of having a relationship with Christ 
that continues to grow and continues to get bigger and and the vision that he has for our lives continues to grow in our minds so that we begin to see ourselves doing and, 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 and doing more for Christ and our relationship with him Christ growing. It is that thought then that leads us to pick up with what he begins to write in verse 12. And that's where I want us to begin today in verse 12 of Philippians 3 where we read these words. Paul says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, whom, of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God, and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. We thank you that it shines a light into the deepest, darkest parts of who we are, illuminates us, oftentimes exposing things that we would prefer to keep shrouded in darkness. But it is in that process of exposing it to us that then you, by your Holy Spirit, are able to come in and change us and to transform us. And I do pray that. I pray that you would accomplish that in our lives today, particularly as your Holy Spirit works through the word that you have offered. Bring that light into our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know about you, but I don't, when, you, when you read verse 12, does it encourage you as much as verse 12 encourages me? Listen to what Paul says. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Now, I don't know how that treat, but that, that made me happy this week. I love it is, is what Matt, Matt Chandler has written. Here you have the Apostle Paul, a man of God at the varsity level of Christian maturity, and yet he even says, I'm still not there yet. I'm still a work in progress. God is still conforming me. and I like to call it the, the, the holy sandpaper that God gets out and begins to smooth the rough edges of our lives. And yet we recognize that sandpaper on our skin doesn't feel very good and, and holy sandpaper upon our, our, our souls does not feel good. And yet it is, a, it is an accomplished thing that God does to smooth us out and to conform us into the image of His Son. And Paul says that's been happening to me and, and I haven't already, I haven't, reached perfection yet. That encourages me. I hope it encourages you. 
It encourages me because I still realize that I've got a long way to go, but, but so do all of us as we want to follow after Christ. A, a number of years ago now, I, I participated in a particular training seminar that focused on discipleship. And, and one of the first things that we were tasked with in that seminar was to provide an accurate definition of what a disciple is. And the, the, the definition that we tossed around and that got a lot of traction was simply this. A disciple is a person who thinks and acts like Jesus. And it was a good definition because that, that really does it in a simplistic form. It gives you something that you can, you can hang your, your, head, your hat on and it, it, someone who thinks and acts like Jesus. The only problem is none of us really thought, well, I don't think and act like Jesus all the time. And so we began to banter back and forth and we came up with, with a definition that we clarified and said this, that a disciple is actually a person who is becoming more and more like Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, discipleship is, is the process of being transformed into the likeness of Christ. And the testimony of Scripture bears that out. The Apostle Paul says these, these things in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. He says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Not only that, but probably the more familiar verse that Paul writes in Romans 12, verse 2. He says, Do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the ultimate goal of discipleship really is life transformation. It is, it is to become spiritually mature and to grow up and to become a fully developed follower of Christ. And consequently, it's safe to say that discipleship is not a point on a line that we get to. It's not a destination that we can finally say, okay, I've arrived. I finally got there. Man, I've been working hard to get there and I'm glad I finally got inside the gates and now I don't have to think about it anymore. No, that's not what discipleship is. Rather, it is a process of the continual transforming of your life through the work of the Holy Spirit that conforms you into the image of Jesus. And I believe that gets to the heart of what Paul stated his goal was back there in verses 10 and 11. He wanted to know Christ intimately and he wanted to become fully grown Fully developed. And Paul recognized just what you and I recognize, though. As long as we live in these mortal bodies and as long as we live in this mortal world, we're going to continue to face challenges and struggles as it pertains to how we live that life out. And therefore, we must be careful not to ever think that we've arrived. In fact, that is the premise with which Paul begins there. I haven't arrived yet. I'm still in the process of becoming. But while we admit and acknowledge that that is the case, we must never allow that realization to become an excuse for us to take our foot off the gas pedal. You see, realizing that discipleship is a process and that spiritual maturity will only ultimately come about once we are at home in heaven with the Lord. That's, that's what Paul refers to there when he, when he speaks about the resurrection from the dead in verse 11. Well, that may tempt us to kind of throw things into neutral now. If you, if you think about it, I, I'm never going to be completely perfected in this life. And, and I know that's only going to come when I get to heaven. And so between now and then, you know, I got to live. And, and, and I don't have much hope of ever being perfect. So 
I think I'm just going to take it easy. I think I'm just going to put it in neutral. I'm just going to float. Paul says that it will not be the mindset of one who desires to grow spiritually and who wants to deepen in their spiritual maturity. In fact, rather than coasting and simply floating along, Paul describes a different reality. In fact, he desires an intense desire to reach a point of of spiritual maturity and to know Christ fully and, and to be conformed in His likeness. And in verses 12 through 14, he makes two parallel statements that indicate exactly how that's supposed to happen. Notice what he says. He says, I press on that I may lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. And then he also says, this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind me and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. Paul's Paul's words are like that of a runner in a race who, who presses forward, who stretches their body out as they see the tape and they see the finish line. They lunge forward with all that they've got. They don't run standing straight up. They give every effort they have to lean forward. They're not turning around and looking to see where the other runners are behind them. They're concerned about one thing. They want to edge themselves as far forward as they can as they reach the finish line of the race that they are running in. Paul uses this and he describes it as the way that the Christian ought to live their life in pushing, lunging, stretching forward. He also uses military language to communicate this point. In verse 12, he speaks of being laid hold of. And he says, I want to lay hold of that which Christ has laid hold of me. Now that word laid hold means to to grasp. It means to overpower. It means to overtake. It means to seize or to pursue. It's, It's what one army would do to another army. When they would win, they would overpower that army and pursue it. That's exactly what Paul is referring to when he says, that's what happened to me on that road to Damascus. The resurrected Christ came and seized me. He laid hold of me. He he took me by by His power. Paul says, because that's the case, now I want to take hold of Him. I want to seize Him, and I want everything that is, is Him to be mine. I want to lay hold of Christ and to know Him in the power of His resurrection. And listen, that pursuit of Christ is not a goal that is reserved for super Christians. Please hear me. This is not something that only someone like the Apostle Paul is to do. That's why he says in verses 15 and 16, as many as are mature have this mind. He goes on to say in verse 16, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. In other words, Paul says that all who are engaged in the process of discipleship, all who, as we said earlier, are becoming more and more like Jesus By the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, there is no appropriate lackadaisical response to what Christ has done for us. Our lives are not to be marked by coasting, by floating. We are not called to simply sit and soak. We are called to strain forward in self-sacrifice and in service of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is who we are called to be. Brothers and sisters, if we're going to be disciples of the Lord Jesus, gaining a more intimate knowledge of the one who gave his life for us on the cross and rose from the dead so that we might 
also be resurrected from the dead. If we truly want our lives to count for the glory of God, then we have to press forward. We must strain ahead. We must keep pushing toward the finish line. So if you haven't already filled in the blanks on your outline, I know this shocks some people that there are some of you out there that like to fill in the blanks before we get there. Beats all I've ever seen. If you haven't already got there, it's a pretty simple outline today. The first point simply is this. Discipleship necessitates pressing forward. Discipleship necessitates pressing forward. Having made that point, I want you to know Paul goes on to urge his readers to follow the example that he has set for them. In other words, what was implicit in verses 15 and 16 is now made explicit in verse 17. He says, Brothers, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. You may recall a couple of weeks ago, the Apostle Paul back in chapter 2 held Epaphroditus and Timothy up as an example to these Philippian believers as two men who lived their lives in such a way that the Philippian believers could pattern their lives after them. We looked at that a couple of weeks back. In that passage, Paul sort of implicitly referred to himself. He flips it here, and he, he, he talks about Epaphroditus and, and Timothy sort of implicitly, but he talks about himself explicitly. And what he says is, look, you can follow my lead. You can do like I'm doing. You can live like I'm living and, and pursue Christ as I'm pursuing him. And, the, and, and in, in that regard, there's just two brief things that I want to say that I think need to be brought out from what Paul says there. The first thing is, it's, it's very, very important that you have a mentor in your life. It's very, very important that you have someone that you can follow. An individual who is following Christ, who loves the Lord Jesus, and you, you line up and you want to pattern your life after theirs. You're not, you're not trying not to be Christ. You want to be as much like Christ as you, have, as you can. But like the Apostle Paul, there's those that come along in our lives who can set themselves up as an example for us to follow. You need to have that example, that mentor in your life. The second thing that I think is important for you to understand is this. You need to strive to be a mentor. You need to strive to be one of those people who can say to others, look, follow me as I follow Christ. You can pattern your life after how I'm living. I'm living in such a way so that I can be unashamed when I stand before the Lord. It does not mean that I'm perfect. You've already heard us state this morning unequivocally, we are, not, we are an imperfect people. But to the degree that we have to follow the Lord and the degree that we have to put one foot in front of the other in pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to live unashamed to be able to tell others to follow in behind us and follow us as we pursue the Lord Jesus. Both of those things are important. We do not live our lives in a vacuum. We do not live, the church is not designed to be lived in an isolated way. We are to live in such a way that we impact one another's lives. And we set the right example for others and we follow the right example as we all are pursuing Jesus. Now the importance of that is made clear by what, he's, what Paul says next. He issues this warning and he identifies those who have influence in this world. Because you realize that there's plenty of people out there that will raise their hands and say, hey, come on and follow me. I got, I got what you need. I've got the answers. I've got the way to live. Come over here and follow me. Paul says there's plenty of people in the world like that, but he warns us, be careful, because many of them are enemies of Christ. 
Many of them have abandoned any hope of Jesus and they're just following after their own things. And Paul says their end is destruction. These folks are destined to eternal hopelessness, eternally separated from God because they deny the power of the cross and because they refuse to humble themselves before and submit to Christ. And the danger that these Philippian believers faced is that there were many of those folks out there Brothers and sisters, that's no less true for us in this day and time. We live in dangerous times, surrounded by people who would seek to influence us in dangerous ways, who would go about undermining the gospel. How do we identify them? Well, in verse 19, we see that they are driven by their sensual appetites. Paul says that their God is their belly. And while that immediately brings up the idea of food and drink, it, it really means more than that. It, it refers to any kind of physical desire that displaces the Lord Jesus and becomes a God. I believe this is further explained by the phrase that Paul uses. He says when their, their glory is in their shame. What, what Paul warns us is that there are those in this world, there are people who, who have major social media impact, people who have major political pl- platforms, People who have tremendous power and tremendous pull who influence us. And they would be unafraid to say, come follow me and come adopt my same way of living and my, same, and my example. But they're driven by their physical lusts. They're driven by their selfish desires. Their glory is in things that are shameful. And their lifestyles and their value systems go completely against that which Scripture teaches. Paul further identifies these people as people who have set their minds on earthly things. In other words, they are dedicated to the material things of the here and now. And their aim in life is not to know Christ and the power of His resurrection. Their aim is not the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. No, their whole inner disposition is governed by earthly pursuits and physical gratification. Based upon what Paul tells us here, there are folks who do what they want, when they want, and how they want, and they're driven by their own passions and desires. And he warns us to be wary of them. Brothers and sisters, we have to heed that warning. It is imperative that the church heeds that warning. We must constantly evaluate the messages that are sent to us from politicians, from marketers, from entertainers, even from our very neighbors who constantly seek to define for us what is normal and acceptable. Based upon what Paul writes here, we must recognize that there are those around us who would lead us astray and pull us away from Jesus. And their focus will impact our focus if we are not careful. But as believers in Christ, we must remember that this earth is not our home, which is what Paul says next. In verse 20, he reminds us that our citizenship is not here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And since that is the case, living as if your citizenship is here makes no sense. And since heaven is our ultimate home, Paul reminds us that that when Christ returns for us, and 
he, our, we will be transformed. We will, we will be freed from all of the things that bind us in this life. And, and, and we will be conformed into His likeness. And our propensity for sin will be gone forever. And we will have the mind and the body of Christ. And the process of discipleship will be completed. And we will, be, have, made, we will have been made like Him. Which is why Paul says we eagerly wait for that day. The return of our Savior. And we believe that nothing in this world can compare to that which Christ has gone to prepare for us. And what that means practically is that we who are believers, our lives are no longer determined by where we came from. It's determined by where we're going. The reality of our life is not what's in the past. Paul said, I turn loose of all of that. I'm pressing forward to that which is laid in front of me. Which, which Christ has secured for me. Listen, when you and I live as if this world is all that there is, as if all of our hope lies in the stuff and the things of this world, then we're not holding true to the gospel. And we're denying the power thereof that the Scriptures teach us. Rather, we are, we're holding on to treasures and things that won't last. That's why we must live in the hopeful expectation of heaven. Because where you call home will determine how you live your life. I'm going to say that again. Where you call home will determine how you live your life. I've, I've mentioned this many times when I was in the Navy. My dad would write me letters. My mom and dad both would write me letters. And, uh, you know, this was back before email. <laughs> and and FaceTime and all that. You actually did it the old-fashioned way. You wrote things out. And so um, my dad and my mom both would write me letters, and pretty much on a weekly basis I'd get a letter from, from them. And my dad finished every single letter that he ever wrote me for the entire four years, four months, 14 days, four hours, and 22 minutes that I was in the Navy. <laughs> every letter he finished this way. Remember who you are and whose you are. Now, Dad was reminding me that I was his. He was reminding me that, that I belonged to him. and My last name was Dale, and that meant something. It still does. But even more, he was reminding me, you're my son, but you belong to him. You belong to the Lord because he bought and paid for you with the blood of Christ on the cross. I want you to know that the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing to us here. He's reminding us of who we are in Christ. You are, you are blood-bought saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have a, a place firmly fixed for you in heaven. And he's going to come back and he's going to receive you to himself one day. That's who you are. And you belong to him. That's whose you are. But then he's reminding us of where we're going. Look, one day we're going to be in glory with the Lord. We're going to experience everything that has been promised to us here is going to be ours. And so it is imperative, brothers and sisters, as we live this life here, that we remember who we are and who we belong to and where we're going. Because when you do, it will impact the way that you live day in and day out in this life. 
Now, I realize when we get here, you realize, you, knew, you realize, preacher, you still got one more point. You hadn't got there yet. But if you've, been, if you've been tracking with me, you know that we're toward the end now, and we're just to the last verse, and it should be fairly simple to fill in these blanks. Because the last thing that I want you to note is not only are we to spend our time pressing forward, discipleship is all about pressing forward, but the second point makes it clear, discipleship is also about standing firm. Discipleship necessitates standing firm. Notice the, four, the, the final verse there. Now you realize chapter divisions and verse divisions, those numbers weren't there when, when Paul wrote this letter. That's something that came much later in time as a benefit to us to help us figure out where we were going to look at together. But this is probably a chapter division that, that could have been better served if it had moved one verse. Because verse 1 of chapter 4 really, I think, is a summation and, and, and a bookend to what we've already looked at. Paul says this, therefore, in other words, in light of everything else I've just told you, brothers and sisters, my long for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. Stand fast, he says. Remain fixed. Remain firm. Don't be moved. Keep your feet squarely planted where they are. This is a recurring theme throughout what Paul writes. He's already said it once in Philippians in chapter 1, verse 27. He says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave and strong. Galatians 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. 2 Thessalonians 2, 15. Stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Listen, discipleship necessitates standing firm. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Paul says, Be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You see, though the world and all of the many who are fixated on worldly things may chase after worthless things, that will never truly satisfy them in this life. And though the pressures may continue to mount against those of us who desire to live our lives in such a way to bring glory to the Lord, we must remain fixed on the truth of the gospel. It must remain central to our lives. We are, as we have already stated this morning, we are a gospel-first family. We have to remain fixed and entrenched in the truth of the gospel. And what that means is that very clearly we declare that Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and no one comes to the Father but by Him. We declare wholeheartedly that there is no name given under men by which they may be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. We also declare that it is only through faith in Jesus and what He has done on the cross by His resurrection from the dead that any of us have any hope for heaven. We are not saved by our works, but rather by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of Christ on the cross alone. And therefore we call all people everywhere to repent of their sins and to turn from living their lives solely for themselves and for the here and now and to make Jesus Christ the Lord of their lives. These are areas upon which we remain firmly entrenched and from which we must not budge. 
Because discipleship necessitates standing firm. And brothers and sisters, if the gospel is our only hope, it's the only hope for the nations as well. And therefore, we cannot and we must not compromise on its truth. So based upon what we've learned from studying this passage today and acknowledging that we have not yet reached our spiritual maturity, that we're still becoming who God desires for us to be, then the sermon and the sentence ought to be pretty straightforward. I've said it about seven ways from Sunday already through everything I've said this morning already. But here you go. Here's your summary. Becoming spiritually mature demands pressing forward in your commitment to become more and more like Christ while also standing firm in the truth of the gospel. Now here's the important question that has to be asked. Does that accurately describe you? Are you growing in your relationship with Jesus? Are you pressing forward in your commitment to follow him? Or if you look at your life, can you kind of honestly look at it and say, you know, I've kind of hit neutral. I've just sort of coasted. I want you to understand that the imperatives of Scripture, the things in which we're told what we're supposed to do, those imperatives always come after the indicative of Scripture. The indicative are what we are told that God has done for us. God has sent His one and only Son to die in the place of sinners like you and me. And because of that, we have the hope of life and life eternal with Him. We've already discussed that today. It is because that is ours, the indicative of Scripture, that then we are forced out with the imperative of Scripture to go and live our lives in such a way that we bring glory and honor to Him. You don't reverse them. The imperatives don't bring about the indicative. It's the indicative that brings about the imperative. Here's my question. If there is no imperative in your life, if you're not striving and pushing forward for the gospel, if you're not straining ahead, is it because you have lost your passion for the indicative? Is it because you have turned away from your first love? And forgotten that God in His Son has expressed His love for you. If that's the case, then I want you to understand that this morning, according to Scripture, you're called to repent. You're called to repent of that, to turn from it. To renew that first love that you have embraced when you came to faith in Christ. And allow that energizing effect of the Holy Spirit to move you forward as you serve Him. If that's not the case, then maybe it is that you've never been energized to begin. Maybe it is you've just never come to the place in life where you've trusted the Lord Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Maybe the fact that God sending His Son to die for you, maybe it is that you've heard about it, but you've never embraced it. What I want you to know is that today is the day of salvation. That's what the Scriptures claim. And so if you will humble yourself before the Lord and if you will confess Him as your Savior, the Bible says you will be saved. And it is then that I believe that the Holy Spirit begins to regenerate and begins to work in your life to push you into a life of service for Him. So I believe those are the questions that come to us as we consider this text this morning. And as we come to that place where we recognize that, that our goal here at Ivy Creek 
is to see men, women, boys, and girls come to faith in Jesus Christ and then to see them grow spiritually, to become mature followers of Christ who press forward in their commitment to become more and more like Christ and who stand firm on the truth of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God and it is for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us and we thank you for your love for us. And we thank you that as we come to the scriptures, you just continue to expose them to us in such a way that, Father, our spirits within us are are convicted and quickened. And that is my prayer this morning. Father, that you might work a great work in our lives that encourages us to continue to press toward that calling that you have in front of us and that you give us clarity with regard to what you want us to do and and how we are to be and that our lives are to be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. Father, it is my prayer that if there is one here today who doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, one who has never come to trust in you and to believe upon you and be saved, that today would be that day. I thank you so much for loving me Thank you. Thank you that I belong to you and that you have a place in heaven prepared for me. I thank you for that and I thank you for that that hope that you give this morning in Christ's name. Amen.